High-speed rail has been safely, efficiently, and affordably transporting people around the world for nearly 60 years now. But until recently, it's never been able to move forward in America. High-speed rail systems are now underway in California and in Texas. And with a new progressive administration in Washington, D.C., is it time for bullet trains in America? My guest today, Brad Perkins, has been working to save the dream of high-speed rail on the tracks in the Pacific Northwest on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Brad Perkins. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So you've been involved with high-speed rail out of Portland, Oregon, working on this from from your side of things for almost 15 years. Is that about right? Yeah. Now, yeah, that's right. Explain to me and to everyone the, the, the definition, what makes high-speed rail a high-speed rail? Well, first of all, um, probably best is to talk about the Federal Highway Administration, what their interpretation of high-speed rail is here in America. And essentially, it's anything, any train that goes 110 miles per hour or greater. And right now, uh, the maximum that uh, any train can go on the system that's run by the freight companies, there are about five, five of them, is 79 miles an hour. So there's a big difference between the two. Okay. That clarifies things. Now, high-speed rail has been a wonderful way of transportation around the world for 60 years or more. There's Europe, all over Europe, and Belgium and France and Italy and Spain. Spain just has announced a new line going from Madrid to uh, Barcelona, I read about. Um, why the why the lack of high-speed rail in the United States? That's a good question. Um, um, a lot of people have different answers for that, but mine basically is that um, – the oil companies and the car companies have dominated our lives ever since I was born, which was close to 70 years ago. Um, we were born with it and we have stuck with it. And a lot of people very feel very comfortable with it, uh, even to this day. Um, but if you calculate the number of hours sitting on the freeway waiting to get through the congestion, people are starting to take a different approach and, think that there's uh, maybe a better way of getting around that's much faster, reliable, and frequent, especially reliable, so that they can get to their son's or daughter's uh, ball game in time. And all that, that they have to deal with then would be the last mile uh, or a couple miles to uh, their destination from the stop that uh, we hope to create with our system, which will not just be for... Uh, inner city, but also for commuters and lightweight freight. So some of the, the history of the the Pacific Northwest Rail Corridor, explain to me, this is running from Vancouver, British Columbia, to approximately Eugene, that's Oregon. Right. Is that designated? That's the designated Pacific Northwest Rail Corridor. This was designated by the Fed government. Uh, in the 90s. It's a 460-mile corridor that um, they felt was within the top 10 corridors throughout the United States. And recently, 
The United States High Speed Rail Association has rated our corridor in the Northwest to be number four on the priority list. Okay, so the the train is possibly coming out of the station very nice and slowly, but this has been going on for decades now. There have been surveys and surveys and environmental impact surveys and for decades, and I'm guessing it's just millions of dollars have been spent to study this concept, but do you think that's just shuffling it under the rug? Well, uh, let's be clear. Um, there haven't been um, surveys, so to speak. Uh, I think of you know getting you know civil engineer out there and start uh, laying out the corridor. Nor have there been uh, very many real surveys of people as to interest in this uh, type of system. Um, we have done a number of studies ourselves. Well, two things are going on, okay? First, you've got the state of Washington that has uh, recently in the last five years done about three uh, studies totaling about $2.6 million. They have to do with feasibility and uh, governance, how it's going to you know, happen uh, through the government, basically. Uh, and then our approach is more of a private-public uh, approach that will be both financed by um, the public, but in the majority sense by uh, private interests. And we've done uh, for the past 15 years our, our corridor analysis with our engineers and also done feasibility studies and also been registered with the Federal Rail Administration as um, a corridor uh, take uh, with a serious approach to where it should be. Right now, we are currently working with a company in Frederick, Maryland, that is specialist in uh, transportation systems and economics, and I've hired them before, but the recent uh, study that's going on right now is our environmental impact statement study. And what that will entail, since you have not heard of us or what's going on at this point, you will be soon, because we have to go out to 17 different communities in the corridor between Wilsonville and Everett, Washington, uh, to get the feedback from the people and uh, see what they think. Now, how is that going to be done? Will that be promoted or advertised, or how is that going to get around? Like mailing, or or how are people going to be hearing this? Various different ways. Um, we will be getting it out in the newspapers, radios, and and talking about this. Uh, and inviting people to participate in the, the latest form of community get-togethers via Zoom or whatever. Uh, we hope by the time that uh, you know the end of summer comes around, we'll be pretty close to finishing this. We have been delayed since this pandemic. So um, we anticipate that uh, we'll get some pretty good response from the people. We already have already just talking about it and talking to various officials about it. Um, there's there's not much um, uh, negative feedback that we're getting because the way in which we're proposing it is not going to be coming from so much the public trough. Okay, um, Our transportation secretary was great the other day talking about how high-speed rail 
not only should happen in America, but America should lead in high-speed rail development in the world. Uh, Pete Budicic did a great job in, in uh, introducing this as one of the first priorities. And it makes a lot of sense because um, one thing great about this type of system, we can uh, cut the time getting to where you need to go, usually by a third uh, and cost less um, in its development than a one lane extra on a freeway would cost. And also, um, <laughs> it's amazing as what it does for economic development at the station areas, which which a freeway, a new, new lane on a freeway won't do. Sure. You mentioned the, the cost. What is the average rider, the cost to an average rider, let's say in a, in a European euro for a, a, a ride? Do you have any of that off the top of your head? How affordable is it for somebody of low income to go from here to there or, or what do you know can you quote me any of that <laughs> well when i when my wife and i went from uh nice uh to paris uh which you know it was about four and a half hours and uh hundreds of miles it was 60 bucks a person um that's phenomenal um and we will uh, be looking at this in such a way that it'll have um, different categories of uh, ticket prices based on uh, age and income, basically. Um, that, um, let's say, a student or a child under 12 or a person over 65 uh, will uh, be charged uh, accordingly. Uh, we are not that far along, but this is uh, the framework that we are working in. Yeah, this is similar to, let's say, the San Francisco Bay and the Bay Area Rapid Transit, um, BART, as it's called. That is their senior yep. senior citizen prices and student prices. And yeah, that's that's uh, an efficient way for for middle class or poor or, you know, to to get around the Bay area and that program has grown and expanded a lot over the years. Um, one of my, one of mm -hmm. my favorite, uh, favorite trips is, is jumping on the BART and, you know, bouncing around the Bay area so freely and, and easily and conveniently mm -hmm. where, uh, yeah. your, your program in is, is a, isolated or you are your own thing. I know that there is a group in Seattle that are looking at Vancouver, BC to Seattle. Are, are you in communication with them at all? Uh, that's called the Cascada, Cascada Innovation Corridor Group, um, headed up by uh, former Governor Christine Bergor. Yeah, I've been up there at conferences. I've uh, participated. Um and it's great. They're, you know, they got the right idea because they're combining uh, government with uh, the higher ed institutions up and down the corridor, as well as uh, Microsoft and other industries that would uh, benefit by the transport of people uh, very quickly and frequently and reliably uh, between their destinations. Their, their biggest uh, uh, benefit would be having uh, people uh, from Vancouver, BC come into Seattle and work and then go home 
uh, in the evening um, or, you know, have a situation where you just work a couple days a week and uh, down in Seattle and, and uh, spend most of their time uh, back home and doing their work. So um, there's a big advantage there because of the uh, uh, income differences between uh, the two um, regions. Okay. So that program is, is going forward. Are they, are they making progress or what's the latest with that? I mean, cause that might benefit you in the Portland and Oregon to, you know, in your corridor, are they moving forward? Well, <clears throat> here's what's interesting. Um, <clears throat> we are, we we're spearheading this, uh, much faster than they are. As you know, government takes forever to get things done and costs twice as much uh, that it would take for private industry. We're proving that. Um, we're doing this uh, in, a, in a way in which we, we spend our time. I'm a real estate broker, okay? This is not my full-time uh, effort here. Um, but I have been working on it for 15 years, and, and uh, my engineer who has been working on this the same amount of time uh, is going full-time on it. What are some of his qualifications? Who, who is your engineer? Yeah. Rudy is a retired Swiss engineer. He worked uh, for Custodis, which was uh, an engineering and repair and development uh, company uh, related to smokestacks throughout the United States. And from that, um, experience. Uh, he was head uh, uh, troubleshooter, designer, and, and uh, rebuilder of uh, these towering smokestacks for industry. Um, Rudy has always had a mind for uh, engineering, and um, I haven't. I, my mind is mostly in design and, and uh, real estate um, development opportunities. So we have been a good uh, pairing of uh, skills. And from that, we can uh, analyze uh, this whole core. I, you know, I've lived here all my life, basically, and, and Rudy um, has been here since the early 60s. And he came there here with that notion in mind um, that he wanted to use his skills to make America greater. And that basically is where I am at, too, and do it in such a way that is uh, conscious of uh, the environment and do um, uh, design and work that uh, really does improve uh, the environment in many different ways. And we felt that this system of uh, uh, transportation is very fast and electrically uh, generated <clears throat> for uh, all the trains uh, is basically pollution-free. So this program that you're uh, suggesting or that you're putting forward, I guess this is going to be a question that many people are going to ask is we'll compare it to California. I mean, hopefully you'd learn something and that the state would learn something to not make the mistakes that California has been making. And maybe we borrow more from uh -huh. how Europe has had success with it. How are you going to pay for this? What is your plan? Okay. Um, as I said before, um, we anticipate using uh, this system of this corridor, new corridor. You know, let's get that straight. Uh, it's not going to use the existing rails. It's basically in line with the I-5 corridor, double-tracked exclusively 
electrified, no grade crossings. And this system then will um, act as a way in which we can both move commuters and passengers between um, cities, you know, uh, commuters to their various suburban homes, but also uh, to uh, distant cities. And then lastly, uh, the movement of lightweight freight between the hours of uh, late night uh, last servicing, let's say at one o'clock to five o'clock in the morning or between commuter hours during the day. I can get into that more if you want, but that, you know, with, with that user, uh, we're talking the big boys here, the UPSs, the Amazons, the FedExes, even Walmart. Uh, if we do this right, having transfer points for unloading uh, goods or loading goods onto the train and zip it down um, uh, along the I-5 corridor <clears throat> and go to other transfer points. You know, So you go to an air- from an airport to a transfer point and then it's distributed to uh, smaller trucks. And <clears throat> we believe that this type of system, we've already done analysis on it and studies with TAMS on it, and it's been proven that uh, there's a real... Uh, possibility here that uh, the uh, regular taxpayer does not have to pay the bulk of the costs here. You know, uh, if you if I if you allow me, I can go the next step on this. Please do. Um, basically, it's leasing the tracks rather than buying the tracks. Okay, so um, if you think in terms of real estate, um, you go to uh, a bank and, and borrow money for developing a project and then lease uh, that that property out. What we want to do is, you know, ahead of time uh, have agreements on, on lease arrangements or, you know, basically get mem- memorandums and understanding on it and then go to the bank, go to the feds, go to whomever where the money resources are uh, and uh, get them to pay for it. Let me see. There is um, questions of, I have questions personally. Uh, how has the track record, no pun intended, been for safety? Do these kinds of, I know Amtrak has issues and some collisions or, you know, bad accidents. How has high-speed rail been over 60 years in Europe and Asia? Well, let's start with the oldest system on earth, and that is... The Shinkansen in Japan, it's been around since the 1964 Olympics. That's what it was built for. And now they have 2,000 miles of track in Japan. Um, Now we're talking, what is it, uh, (laughs) um, over 50 years, and they have not had an accident, excuse me, uh, a death related to an accident yet. Um, and they've been very uh, succinct about getting to their locations within seconds. So it's not only, um, you know, a very safe way to travel, uh, but it's, you know, very dependable as well. Um, Now, you might recall the accident that occurred up near DuPont, when the inaugural run for Amtrak occurred between um, just south of Lakewood. Um, Yes, of course. Yeah. um, That was in uh, 2018. It had nothing to do with high-speed rail. Okay. 
uh, it's not a high-speed rail system in which uh, they uh, used $800 million of uh, stimulus dollars that they got in 2009 to rehabilitate the, basically the existing line for uh, Burlington Northern. Now, they were supposed to put a bypass on that that was basically a flyover uh, from the existing track north to the existing track south to uh, avoid that 30-mile-an-hour turn. They didn't. They didn't use any of that $800 million for that. Um, and and that's what caused the accident. They, you know, the mindset of the engineers, who was very poorly trained, was that, oh, boy, we're on a, you know, the inaugural run. We're going to uh, top speed it, and we're going to make record time down to Portland. Unfortunately, three people died and over 60 people were injured in that in that accident. That was a tragedy, of course. I heard a, an interview recently with a man named Brian Kelly, CEO of the uh, High Speed Rail Authority, speaking very highly of, of this project and of this program. And you had mentioned that our new administration and Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg excuse me, seems to be very gung-ho and very open and excited uh, for us to, well, catch up and to lead in high-speed rail. It's a big price ticket. I hear estimates 24 to $40 billion, but it's a big, that's a big, a big comma there. The payoffs will be huge, correct? And it seems like the energy is starting to, to move that direction. Are you optimistic that this is going to be seeing some progress in the next years or so. With the new Biden administration and our new transportation secretary, um, Budesich, um I have been, become more optimistic than I have um, since starting on this. Um, as you know, Biden has been a, a, an advocate of uh, Amtrak for many, many years. He's ridden it almost daily as uh, a senator. Um, from Delaware to DC. Um, so that's great. And uh, with Budicet, uh recently saying that not only do we want to have high speed rail in America, but we want to lead the world in it. Uh, that's great too. And here we have uh, Peter DeFazio, who is our congressman from our state, who is head of the um, uh, Rep- House of Representatives for Transportation. Which is, another, which is another great link or possibility of, of getting something done. Now, um, again, I want to repeat the importance of this fact, and it's different than what other uh, systems have been thinking or doing, uh, including California in this. Uh, I think the big mistake that they have had is that they have not made this um, an advantageous uh, investment opportunity for people with money, um, especially major corporations that deal in transportation of goods. And the other uh, problem that they have had down there is the system in which they are building it. Um, our system will be much different, uh, similar to Chinese, the Chinese who have now in the, the close proximity of doing 15,000 miles <laughs> of tracks, lane tracks, uh, since 2007, that's 13 years, almost a thousand miles a year. Um, and their method is, is, uh, 
uh, a gantry using a gantry system, which is uh, building sections um, and then uh, transporting them and setting them in place on top of columns. What they're doing down in California is building formwork up to uh, where they're going to pour the concrete and then dismantling all that formwork when they're done and then move on to the next uh two columns to, to develop. So um, <clears throat> there's a great deal of time, time savings and a great deal of um, uh, money saved in that, in that type of process. I think it would be wise to look and to copy or at least take inspiration from those who have been doing this for so much longer and successfully. In our last uh, couple minutes here, just a, a question between Eugene, or you said between Portland and Everett, or correct correct me, that was that Wilsonville and yeah, Everett? Wilsonville. How many stops do you think you might see in that space? About seventeen, um, and most of those are commuter stops. There'll still be the ability to go straight from Portland okay. to Seattle without any stops. I mean, uh, because there's so much capacity on this new corridor with two tracks you will be able to bypass slower trains or trains with uh, more stops at various train stations. There will be three tracks, at least, at the, the train stations. Uh, Where can people find more uh, about your uh, about your proposal and your organization? Uh, they can look at our website, which has uh, just recently been updated. Um, Rudy, Rudy has done a fantastic job. Um, at CascadiaHighSpeedRail.com. Great. CascadiaHighSpeedRail.com. Brad Perkins, CEO yeah. and um, Executive Director, President of Cascadia High Speed Rail. I appreciate your time, and I'll be checking in with mm-hmm. you again. Maybe we can do another episode in the future about some progress as we move forward and on down the track. Thank you, Brad. You're welcome. Brad can be reached at brad at chsr.com. You can find more episodes of Times Like Now wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. I'm Trevor, and I can be reached, trevor at timeslikenow.com. Timeslikenow.com.